This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "Cultivating Love and Compassion," recorded September twenty-sixth, two thousand and four, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I thought this morning I would give a little talk about a very important practice, and that is cultivating love and compassion. And then we could together do this practice, and I will give you some guided instructions. Going through it, ideally, this practice should be given after people have had a chance to practice concentration and another practice called choiceless awareness. But don't worry about that because I'm going to give you a little instruction in that as well. So we'll all be up to speed、uh, to be able to do this practice. And even if you've never done any meditation before, this practice can be extremely beneficial. It's something that once you've done it for a while. It becomes second nature, and you can use it any time, any place, as we'll see. So it's a very, very important practice and a very beneficial practice on the path. So where does it fit in? And we could start off by giving a philosophical description of the importance of love and compassion. But I think it's perhaps more to the point to describe where it arises naturally on a path, at what place on a path, and. Almost everyone who starts in a spiritual path, a mystical path, one of the first lessons they encounter is the lesson of impermanence. All traditions stress this, and all traditions advise the seeker to become mindful of the ephemeral nature of all worldly phenomena. That nothing lasts. You know, Jesus talks about not storing up treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt them. The Quran calls this life a sport and a pastime, compares it to the grasses that are harvested. The Buddha recommended that we view this life as a dewdrop, a mirage, a dream. The idea is everything's passing; everything's impermanent. And this is something we know intellectually, but we don't actually act on our knowledge because we're always grasping at the world, at things in the world, as though they were permanent. And that's a constant source of our suffering because nothing is permanent. And then when it dissolves, dies, rusts, or whatever, we're disappointed. We're unhappy. Here's how a great Hindu mystic of the last century, Ananda Moyama, describes it. Everything in this world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes, and the next moment it is gone. If permanent, abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. That sums it up for any mystic of any tradition. There's nothing wrong with the world. I mean, it's impermanence. In fact, from another point of view, the impermanence of the world is the beauty of the world. You know, it's like music. The very fact that notes arise and pass is what gives music its beauty. And if notes were fixed and steady, it would be a nightmare. You can just imagine a series of notes. You know, start playing and they don't vary. They just go on and on and on. So it's not the fact of impermanence that's the problem. It's our attitude towards it, our grasping, our trying to push away, our trying to cling, becoming attached and fixated. So, one of the things that in the very beginning seekers are advised to do is to pay very close attention to this moment-to-moment impermanence, because we all know that everything's impermanent. Even the stars are impermanent. But what mystics are talking about is, if we look at our experience, not only are objects impermanent in the sense that they rust away or something, but every moment of our experience, the phenomena that arises and passes away, is all in flux. The sights, the sounds, the sensations. We think of the world as being made up of these solid objects that we sort of have to navigate through and bang into and all that. But if we really pay attention to our experience, we see it's a river, it's a flowing river, and it's through that paying attention for ourselves, observing for ourselves, that's what really weans us 
of this conditioned response of trying to grasp. When we see for ourselves how futile it is, we give it up. So this is not a teaching of good and evil, except insofar as suffering is always evil and happiness is good. But it's a teaching of insight, giving insight into what is the reality, what is our true condition. And stop acting out of some imaginary world the way we would like things to be. So if we do this, pay attention to the impermanence, and we start to see how futile it is to try to grasp things, to hold things and all that, then we develop some detachment, which does not mean being stoical. In fact, being stoical and not allowing any emotions to arise is not detachment, because detachment is neither grasping nor pushing away. And if you're pushing away your own emotions, that is not detachment. That is kind of a negative grasping. I would like to feel nothing. Then I'll be immune to suffering. That can't be done either. It's all about reality. Or what is real? What is the truth? But if you practice this observing impermanence and you really start to see this futility, one of the things that happens to a lot of seekers is they become very apathetic, sometimes profoundly apathetic. We even have terms for it like desert experience or experiences of aridity. It's like, why do anything? What's the point? It's all impermanent. It's all transitory. It's all ephemeral. Why bother to get up in the morning? Have any of you gone through a period like that as a result of spiritual practice? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you. The more you observe impermanence, the more you can fall into this. So if you haven't experienced it, maybe you should go back and look at impermanence more closely. It's a good thing to happen because transformation is all about not just our thoughts, but how we actually experience the world. But the reason most seekers fall into apathy is that we haven't really discovered another more mature motive for acting in the world. Something other than self-interest, something that transcends self-interest. So what could that be? And actually, we all know what it is, because it does occur naturally in our lives. And that is love and compassion. You don't have to be on a spiritual path to experience love and compassion. In fact, we all long for love and compassion because a part of us knows that this is the key to happiness. And when we do feel love and compassion, we are perfectly capable of acting selflessly. At the very least, we put someone else's interests on par with our own, but we can even be prompted to pure selfless action, which happens in the most dramatic circumstances, for instance, when you know somebody runs into a burning building to save a perfect stranger. They're risking their own lives to save someone. So this is possible. It occurs in our lives. But it only occurs here and there, and then it's gone, and we're back to our grasping, our pushing away. If we could start to act out of selfless love and compassion, moment to moment, our actions, our lives would start to conform to reality. Because from a mystic's point of view, the reality is there is no self. And in fact, that is the fundamental insight we are trying to have. That all this worry, all this suffering, all this uh, scheming to enhance, to protect the self is based on an illusion. There is nothing there. And if we could let that illusion go, then our lives would be just like the waves on the ocean. Not separate from the ocean. We have no sense of loneliness, no sense that we're missing anything. The wave has everything of ocean in it. There's no part of ocean the wave doesn't have in it. And then our, our lives would become divine expressions of the ocean rather than a desperate grasping or pushing away. 
And this is not just an intellectual understanding. Even if you read all those great mystical books in there and you came to the intellectual conclusion, yes, there is no self, it wouldn't do you any good. Because it's how we act, how we think, how we respond, how we actually perceive the world with this separation of a boundary of I and other that's the problem. So we have to start acting. We have to start doing. And that's why love and compassion in all traditions is just indispensable to walking a mystical path. Here's uh, what Jesus said. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He's speaking as a Jewish rabbi here. He's saying the whole Torah and all the prophets and all that boils down to this. Because these are just two things in in the Torah. This isn't something he invented. But what he did is he selected them out and said, this is it, kids. I mean, this is the fundamental principle. To love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is to take attention off yourself. It's selflessness. All of Jesus' teachings is all about selflessness, as all the great mystics are. And particularly with Jesus, he's not so interested in philosophy. He's interested in doing. And he goes through and tells you how to do this. You know, if someone asks you to go a mile, go two miles. Very practical guy. Here's the Quran which is equally practical. Show kindness unto parents and unto near kindred and orphans and the needy and unto the neighbor who is of kin and the neighbor who is not of kin and the fellow traveler and the wayfarer and those whom you have power over. That's just about everybody. But it's interesting to make it specific and concrete. So you say, well, love and compassion, what am I supposed to do? Well, what are you supposed to do? When the transients come to your door asking for cans, they're people to practice love and compassion on, the needy. Do you know what I mean? Just your neighbor next door wants to borrow a cup of sugar. I don't know. Nobody borrows sugar anymore. They want to borrow some alfalfa sprouts. (laughs) (laughs) So every tradition, Krishna tells Arjuna in the great Hindu classic, the Bhagavad Gita, the God Krishna. He says, I love my devotee, the man of discipline, always happy, controlling himself, firm of will, accepting all creatures with solidarity and compassion, not selfish, not self-centered. And here's the Tibetan master, Jamgang Kangshu. He's a Buddhist. The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking complete hold of the welfare of others. Every single tradition. So if you fall into apathy, the way out is to start cultivating love and compassion. But it's interesting how the mystics describe this. We just heard Jesus say this is a commandment. Krishna links it to uh, discipline. Jamgang Kangshu says it's a training. So if love and compassion occur naturally in our lives, why make it sound like some sort of austere discipline or training or something we have to do? And the reason is, for most of us, the truth is, while we long for love and compassion, we are also afraid of it. We are really afraid of it. We are afraid if we surrendered completely to these natural impulses of love and compassion, what would happen to us? If we really did what Jamgang Kantrul said and threw out concern for our own welfare 
and took complete hold of the welfare of others, why, people would abuse us, they mistreat us, they take advantage of us. And so you can see this in yourself, and you can see this even in very little ways. Here is this conflict of impulses. The transients come to your door, and they want some cans, and part of you says, oh, yes, of course. And then another condition part jumps and says, wait a minute. I don't know about this. Are they going to take advantage of me? The neighbors are going to see the transients around, da, 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 da. You can watch your own mind. This is part of developing detachment from your own thoughts. You get to see your thoughts without judgment, without immediately trying to shut them up. See what's really going on. That's very important. One of our key precepts is honesty. Not to deceive yourself about what actually happens in your mind. Because nothing's going to happen if you're deceiving yourself. You watch, you see. And you see that initial opening of the heart, that initial impulse to give it away, that courageous impulse to embrace life is suddenly dampened by another impulse. Says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm going to watch out for number one here. If I don't look after me, who's going to look after me? You, you feel that. You'll see it and you'll feel it. And you see, where does happiness lie? More and more self-protection or more and more giving. So we need to practice in order to overcome this fear. It's through the practice that we overcome the fear. It's like a child who doesn't know how to swim faced with learning how to swim. They look at that pool and they're afraid. They want to swim. They see their older kids in there playing around, splashing, you know, whatever. So on one hand, they want to, but they're also afraid. They've seen stones go in there and sink to the bottom, and they think that's going to happen to me. And the parents say, you know, uh, it's okay, little Johnny. No, no, you know, it's going to be okay. I don't want to get in the pool. And there's only so much you can do to teach the child how to swim verbally. You know, you can say, well, now when you get in the pool, you know, just relax. First you'll float, and then you move your arms this way, and you kick your feet, and you'll go along and all that. And the child wants to know how to swim before they get in the pool. And guess what? You cannot learn how to swim first. You have to get in the pool first. You have to get in the pool when you don't know how to swim. And that's how you learn to swim. You act before you know. If you wait till you know before you act, you'll never learn to swim. So this is like us with love and compassion. If we want to cultivate it, we have to get in there. We have to actually start doing it. But like the child, we don't necessarily have to go jump in the deep end right away. In the old days, in the Wild West, John Wayne would throw the kid in the swimming hole, you know, and he learned to swim or not, whatever. But, you know, it could work, and there are situations where that works spiritually. Read Eddie Hillison's book. But one of the best ways to begin is with a Buddhist practice called Tonglin, which means sending and taking. The idea is taking on suffering and sending out love and compassion. That's what sending and taking means. Sending and taking allows us to confront our fear in the safety of a meditative environment. And we sort of get used to these feelings. And then that helps us embrace them when we're out with other people. So, first of all, sending and taking is in other traditions. The story of the crucifixion is nothing but a story of sending and taking, as presented in the Christian tradition. Jesus takes on the sins, and that includes the suffering of humanity, out of pure selfless love and compassion, giving selfless love and compassion. It's nothing but a model of sending and taking. There are Sufi prayers. The Sufi prays to be sent to hell, and I'll take on the burdens of everybody in hell so that they can be released from hell. It's nothing but a practice of sending and taking, a prayerful practice. But the Buddhists had this very, very precise meditative practice. So it's not that the Buddhists are better or special or anything else. We choose what seems to be the most precise practice here. That's all. So what do we need to do this practice? How does it work? 
First of all, we divide all beings into four categories. Yourself, that's the first one. Your friends, or people that you love. Strangers, or people that you feel neutral about. And enemies, people who arouse hostility or aggravation or whatever. And again, that just about covers it, doesn't it? All beings in your life you're going to have some reaction to or you will fit into those categories. And then, in the traditional way of presenting and sending and taking, you progress. You start with yourself. You start with allowing yourself to experience your own suffering, allowing yourself to experience the desire to be relieved of this suffering, and allowing yourself to experience what would it be like to have peace and happiness and joy. And it's very important to begin with yourself because if you don't understand your suffering and are not willing to face it, and if you don't understand your longing for happiness, you can't understand other people's suffering and their longing for happiness. This is the difference between true compassion and pity. Compassion, the word means to suffer with. Passion as in the passion of the Christ from that movie, you know, that Mel Gibson made. There's a lot of suffering. Compassion means to suffer with. Pity is something where we look down on poor creatures and we feel sorry for them. So if we are acting out of pity, we feel superior. Oh, those poor people. Well, I can afford to help them out a little bit. Here's some crumbs from the table. Compassion means you're in the trenches with them, or at least you've been there. And you're not saying, oh, you poor people. You're saying, hey, brother, sister, I know what you're going through. You know, I've been there. I know it. I feel it. And there's a true connection there. So this is very important. (coughs) Then we progress to friends or loved ones, because usually that's the next easiest thing to feel compassion Mm -hmm. for. Then strangers or neutral people and then enemies. And then just let me say, we need one other thing, a preliminary to start. We really need to try to cultivate some kind of sense of spaciousness to do the practice. Otherwise, when we arouse feelings of suffering, we're in danger of just being overwhelmed by them, and then we'll shut down. So we begin with a little preliminary meditation to create a spacious awareness, and we use a technique called choiceless awareness to get there. So if you've never heard of choiceless awareness, don't worry about it. I'm going to guide you through it. So uh, I'm going to rearrange the furniture here for a moment. And then I'm going to just give you some guided instructions. If you just follow along with me and we'll go through this practice of sending and taking. And then afterwards, we can have some questions and whatnot. So just give me a second here. I'm going to sit down for this so... You won't be able to see me, but that'll be a good thing. You won't be distracted by my handsome radiant countenance. <laughs> so I'm going to ring the gong, and then I'm going to give you some guided instruction. And just so you know what's coming, no surprises, we're going to start with a little of this concentration on the breath, focusing the attention on the breath. And then I'm going to ask you to allow your attention to expand into various fields of awareness, we call them. And these are simply the sense fields, although we're not going to bother with uh, taste and smell. But allow your attention to expand into the sensory field, which is basically the sensations you feel in your body. And then you allow attention to expand into the auditory field, so you become aware of sounds and so forth. And then you allow attention to expand even farther into the visual field, so you become aware of your visual surroundings. And then finally into the mental field, so you're just aware of whatever thoughts or images are going on in consciousness. So as we're starting with this very focused meditation, it's like a spotlight in a theater that's focused on some point on a stage And then we slowly open it up, open it up into a floodlight. So it illuminates the whole stage. So whatever is going on the stage doesn't matter. People can be running back and forth, our thoughts and so forth. But the light stays still. That's the big difference here in what makes it a meditation practice. The light isn't running after anything that's happening. The light is just this even, nice, spacious illumination. 
And then in that space, we'll start our sending and taking practice. And again, I'll just give you some little simple guided instructions to go through it, okay? Uh, don't linger, especially if those of you who are doing this for the first time. If you don't feel anything, nothing's happening, don't worry about it. Uh, hopefully you will remember the instructions or eventually you'll be able to check out this tape and do it again if you're interested. But sometimes it takes a little practice to really, you know, work up to this. It's not easy to make emotions appear on command. So treat it as a kind of experiment. So here we go. Ring the gong once to let us know we're beginning and then we'll be moving from section to section. I won't ring the gong again, but at the very end, I'll ring the gong twice to let us know it's over. Okay, here we go. So begin by concentrating your attention on your breath or whatever meditation object you've chosen. Watch how the breath goes out, turns around, comes in, turns around. Now let your attention expand into your sensory field, into your body. Becoming aware of whatever sensations are present. Itches. Little aches or pains. pressure or tingling. Without focusing on any particular sensation, just allow them to arise and pass without grasping or pushing anything away.
now let attention expand even farther to include the auditory field, becoming aware of whatever sounds are present, the sounds of my voice, sounds from the park, internal sounds, stomach rumblings, Now expand attention even further to include the visual field. Without looking around, just become aware of the visual phenomena that present themselves. Also become aware of the space in which the visual phenomena present themselves. Expand attention even further to include the mental field. Whatever thoughts are arising, images, memories flowing through. Allow your thoughts to arise and pass without grasping at any of them or pushing any away. Now expand your attention throughout the total field of consciousness awareness. Limitless, infinite, without end. This great space of awareness in which all these phenomena, sensations, sounds, sights, thoughts, and if there are smells and tastes, arise and pass, without obstruction. Allowing them to arise and pass without grasping, without pushing anything away. Just being that space itself, that space of awareness. Now within this vast open space of awareness, recall some problem 
or an illness or something that happened or is happening which caused or is causing you suffering. Try to bring it to mind as vividly as possible. Now stop thinking about this illness or problem and focus attention on the actual feeling of the suffering, the pain, anger, sorrow, jealousy, whatever it is. Now, as you inhale, begin to bring this suffering into your heart. Into your heart, which is not just your physical heart, but the center of this vast space of consciousness itself. And if you're good at visualization, you can imagine it in the form of hot black smoke which you breathe in deep into your heart. Open your heart wide to accommodate it. The more suffering there is, the wider your heart opens to accommodate. Now, as you exhale, breathe out love and compassion for yourself. And if you're good at visualizations, you can imagine it as a radiant white light that suffuses all your bodily cells. And accompany your out-breaths with the wish or prayer or intention that you be relieved of this suffering and instead filled with peace and joy and happiness. And finally, as you breathe out, send the wish, the prayer, or the intention that all beings throughout the universe be filled with peace, joy, and happiness.
Now bring to mind any problem or illness that a friend or a loved one is suffering. And stop thinking about the problem and focus on the feeling of suffering that they must be experiencing. Whether it be pain or anger or sorrow or jealousy, see if you can feel that feeling. And as you inhale, bring that loved one's suffering into your heart. You can visualize, visualize it in the form of hot black smoke. And open your heart wide to accommodate it. As you exhale, breathe out love and compassion for your loved one. Imagine it in the form of radiant white light flowing out across space to touch them. Accompany your outbreath with the wish, the prayer, that your loved one be relieved of their suffering and filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Finally, as you breathe out, send the wish or the prayer that all beings throughout the universe be filled with joy, peace, and happiness. Now recall seeing a stranger who was suffering. Maybe a homeless person on the street, or maybe a victim on TV of war or natural disaster. Bring that image to mind as vividly as possible. And stop thinking about the incident and focus the attention on the suffering that person must have felt. The pain or the anger, the sorrow, 
See if you can feel that yourself. And as you inhale, bring that stranger's suffering into your heart in the form of hot black smoke. Open your heart wide to accommodate it. As you exhale, breathe out love and compassion for that stranger, wherever they may be now. You can imagine in the form of radiant white light flowing out to the universe, seeking them out. And accompany that out breath with the wish or prayer that that stranger be relieved of their suffering and filled with peace and joy and happiness. And finally, as you breathe out, send the wish or the prayer that all beings may be filled with peace joy, and happiness. Now recall or imagine some incident that caused someone you considered to be an enemy suffering. Maybe it's a colleague at work, a difficult colleague, or a difficult relative, someone that aggravates you, annoys you, maybe you're even afraid of. Something in their lives that caused them suffering. If you don't know of an incident, imagine an incident. Everyone gets sick. Everyone grows old. Everyone dies. Now stop thinking about the incident and focus on that feeling of suffering that your enemy experiences. The pain, the anger, sorrow, jealousy, whatever it is. You know what that feels like. See if you can feel that. And as you inhale, bring the enemy's suffering into your heart in the form of hot black smoke. Open your heart wide to accommodate it. The more suffering, the wider your heart can open. 
And as you exhale, breathe out love and compassion for your enemy. Imagine it in the form of radiant white light streaming out into the universe. And accompany your out-breath with a wish or prayer that your enemy be relieved of suffering and be filled with peace and joy and happiness. And finally, as you breathe out, send the wish, the prayer, that all beings be relieved of whatever suffering they're experiencing and instead be filled with peace and joy and happiness. Let me end with some suggestions for how to practice this. First of all, uh, this is a kind of practice where if you spend a couple of months training in it in a concentrated way, it becomes second nature, and then you have it with you whenever you need it. So I would suggest taking each of the categories of beings and practicing for a week, like once a day on yourself, uh, your loved one, a stranger, and an enemy, and then spending another two weeks running through them all together, and then spending a final week or two, so eight weeks, let's say, doing this, but now running through it more rapidly and trying to synchronize the inhaling and the exhaling with the emotion and the thought and everything else that goes with it. So in the beginning, you're being quite detailed and you're spending time imagining Whatever incident is recalling the feelings, you want to feel the suffering as much as possible. But by the end, you are doing sort of a shorthand of everything you've been practicing. And then in the future, you can use this practice in a number of ways, informally. First of all, if you are just driving down the street and you see an accident and you see, you know, somebody lying on the ground and the ambulance is there and they're loading them up and they're carting them off. And you think, well, what can I do? Well, you can do a little sending and taking right on the spot. Just a few breaths. If you've been practicing, it'll just come to mind. It'll be just natural. If you run into a problem, let's say, with a family member who's on a very self-destructive course, and there's nothing you can do about it. You've tried everything, you know. And finally, what can you do? It's very frustrating. You can do sending and taking. You can do sending and taking in quite detail if you know about their circumstances. So you can be very experimental with this practice. I gave you the formal outlines of the practice, but you get into it. You can be inventive within the, the boundaries of the practice. But I want to say one thing very important. This is not a magical practice. I know some of you have read studies about prayer, you know, actually has some material benefits statistically and whatnot. If you take it that way, you are setting yourself up for suffering. If you do sending and taking for a relative who's 
self-destructing, and then they end up committing suicide, you'll say, well, well, the practice didn't work. That is not the purpose of the practice. If it works that way, great, that's fine. Keep in mind the teaching from the Bhagavad Gita, which you find in one form or another in all great traditions. You have a right to the action, but not the fruit. The fruit of the action is up to God, the divine, the cosmos. This action is for you. This action is to clarify your heart and yourself. And it also has an effect on all beings just because it affects the spiritual climate of our planet. It's like the butterfly effect, you know? If there's a thought in our mind of antagonism and hatred and destruction, that's a thought that has effects in the planet. If there's a thought of compassion and love, that has an effect. And it does not matter how great an effect it has. That's why Meister Eckhart says, you know, if you feed only one person, but you had the intention to feed the whole world, it's just as if you'd fed the whole world. It's the love and the compassion and the selflessness with which we put into our simple little acts that is important. And don't worry about becoming a Mother Teresa of Calcutta. If you're supposed to be Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you'll become Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Nothing can stop it. If you're not supposed to be Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you won't and nothing can make it happen. So don't worry about any of that. The way we manifest love and compassion begins in the tiniest little acts. Once someone asked a Zen master, what is love and compassion? And he said, well, uh, ask me how I am. So the student says, well, how are you? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm fine. How are you? And the student says, well, I'm doing pretty good. And the Zen master says, that's love and compassion. Just that little exchange when we show a little consideration, a little caring for somebody. That's the beginning of love and compassion. A lot of people, you know, they're looking for the great heart openings and the angels to sing and the lights to come from heaven. And they miss all the opportunities in their daily lives to practice love and compassion. So it's a practice that has lots of ramifications. It's a practice that you can work with very creatively. Don't just slavishly follow it. It's a very uh, helpful, very important practice. So... I'll leave you with those suggestions. And now, are there any questions? Yes, Bonnie. I find that this practice is especially helpful for me whenever I find any kind of conflict at all with anyone. It, it helps with any kind of situation. If you're at work and uh, somebody, a stranger walks in, I don't, let's say you have a job where you have to deal with the public and they do something rude or insulting and whatever, in two breaths, you can do this practice, the whole practice. And that two breaths will give you the spaciousness, just what you're describing, Bonnie, that spaciousness you need for some wiser, more compassionate reaction to enter in rather than you're just getting your hackles up and automatically responding because someone pushed your down button. And who knows what's going to happen? That's the freedom. We're not deprogramming ourselves from one kind of conditioning and then programming ourselves for another conditioning. Mysticism is about freedom from all conditioning. And that spaciousness is where you discover that freedom. You're very right. You can use this practice just throughout your day. You really can. Yeah. Doesn't, uh, doesn't compassion always involve what this little practice has sort of structured. I mean, can, can there ever be any compassion without sending and taking? Well, all, almost all spiritual practices, but particularly this practice, is a way of formalizing what happens naturally so that we can train in it, cultivate it. So, you know, just like in your garden. I mean, what happens in your garden happens naturally. You just cultivate it. You help it along and you create boundaries and stuff, you know. But the growing is not up to you. The growing happens naturally, and it'll happen whether you're there or not. So all these practices are really basically like that. In mysticism, we're not working with things that aren't already there somehow inherently in the condition of things. They're, they're part of the reality. We're just trying to bring them out, and then we're trying to conform our lives to them. That's really what we're about.
All right, well, if there are no more questions, we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and you're welcome to hang around, have some tea. Until we see you again, then, peace to you all.